morning wouldn't let me go. So here we are. Here are the top ten reasons I didn't want to preach this message this morning, not in any particular order this morning. I didn't want to preach this message this morning because it's not amazingly inspirational like Jim Grinnell's sermons, because it's not deeply theological like Jim Garrett's messages, because it's not incredibly joyful like Joel Vasanen's sermons. I didn't want to preach this morning because it's not very personal like Dave Troutman's sermons. It's not solidly motivational like Gordon's. It's not profoundly insightful like Bruce's sermons. I didn't want to preach this morning this particular message because it could come across as a negative message, because it makes me sound like the bad cop, because it might seem like I'm primarily preaching against something instead of for something. And also, I didn't want to preach this morning because I've preached this message before. I've preached this idea, this passage of Scripture before. But despite these top ten reasons, which were pretty compelling as I wrestled with God over this morning's theme, there are at least four key reasons why I am preaching this morning's message. Anyway, I truly believe, first of all, that this is God's direction for today. Secondly, I believe firmly that there is a faith once for all delivered to the saints, and it's revealed in the Word of God. Third, I'm like the Apostle Paul, at least in this way. I feel a divine jealousy for you. And also like the Apostle Paul, I worry you may be led astray from pure devotion to Christ. If you have your Bibles this morning, you might want to turn with me to our text for this morning, which is from 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to look at verses 1 through 6, but also several verses around this. But let's read these six verses to start with. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. Now, we could read a lot more of this particular section of Scripture, the verses before this, the verses after this. But for our purposes this morning, we're going to focus on these six verses because they get to the heart of what we're going to explore today. Here we see the Apostle Paul feeling as if he had to stoop to the level of those he sarcastically, no doubt, called super apostles. These so-called super apostles were undermining the gospel that Paul had preached. And the Corinthians, they weren't only putting up with it, they were eating it up. This deeply concerned Paul. This concerned him so much that he was at the point of fear for their spiritual well-being. So here we have a whole section of scripture in which Paul felt the need to boast for the express purpose of defending his credentials to remind the Corinthians of the truth. He considered boasting about himself to be foolishness. He didn't want to do that. 
but he did it nevertheless, and he did it because he was concerned about the Corinthians. He was concerned because of good-sounding arguments that were capable of deceiving these people. He was concerned because there is such a thing as pure devotion to Christ. Not just devotion. Now, many people are devoted, but pure devotion in this context clearly indicates purity of doctrine. In verse 2, Paul expresses his desire to present the Corinthian church to God as a pure bride. Now, what he meant by that? By pure bride, he meant one who was unaffected by false doctrine. The Corinthians' pure and simple devotion to Christ was being threatened by this false teaching. Paul did not want the believers to lose their single-minded love for Christ. So here we get to the heart of why I didn't want to preach this message. Kind of like Paul, I didn't want to resort to boasting, which he thought was foolishness. It sounds like, again, I'm the bad cop, like I'm against something, like I'm scolding you. But you know what? This was serious enough to Paul that it has to be serious to me as a leader of this church. Here's Paul. He's one of the New Testament's prime examples of teachers of the faith. One of the prime examples we have of faith lived out in the world. So here's Paul admitting that this is something that he feared. He feared they would be deceived. He feared they would be taken in, won over by false teaching, and that as a result, they would be led astray. Paul knew that they were susceptible to deception. How do you know that? Well, first of all, he'd seen it, he'd heard about it, he feared it. Secondly, we're all susceptible to deception, and Paul knew that too. That's the reason he resorted to foolish boasting to gain a hearing. Paul knew of Jesus' own warnings about being deceived. Deception was something he himself warned about in many other letters that he wrote to the New Testament churches. The sheer volume of warnings about deception and false doctrine is remarkable. We'll see this here shortly as we read some of these. Paul no doubt remembered Jesus' words in Matthew, Matthew 24, verse 4, where Jesus said, watch out, watch out that no one deceives you. The immediate context of this particular passage in Matthew 24 is Jesus' warning about the end times and the many false prophets who would lead people astray. But seen in the light of the many other warnings that we see in Scripture about deception. Paul knew that Jesus' words, watch out that no one deceives you, could be taken as a warning for any kind of deception, not just deception about the end times. Isn't that interesting that his very first response to the question that he was asked about the end times was to warn them about deception? He didn't just jump right into the answer. The first thing he warned them was, watch out that you not be deceived. The fact is that whenever we look for signs, we become very susceptible to being deceived. There are many false prophets around with counterfeit signs of spiritual power and authority. The only sure way to keep from being deceived is to focus on Christ and his words. Don't look for special signs and don't spend time looking at other people. Look at Christ. Jesus' warnings about false teachers still hold true. Upon close examination, it becomes clear that many nice-sounding messages don't agree with God's message in the Bible 
Only a solid foundation in God's Word can equip us to perceive the errors and distortions in false teaching. So what does Jesus tell us? He says, watch out. I believe that's God's Word to us today. Watch out. Be on guard. Be careful. This may be offensive to some, but I'm going to say it anyway. And first, I'm going to take a drink to give me the courage to say it. It's just water. (laughs) There's so much garbage out there masquerading today as Christian teaching. So many radio preachers, TV preachers, authors, so many people with podcasts and articles you can download from the Internet. You know what? I find some good stuff out there. I find a lot of good stuff. But I have to say I just shake my head at how much spiritual junk is out there. And if it's just junk, that's one thing. But some of it is junk in attractive packages. That's why Paul warns us here and in many other places in the New Testament. That's why Jesus warned us to watch out because most false doctrine is wrapped up in the midst of at least some things and in some cases many things that sound good if we're not exercising discernment. There is no better check to keep us under Christ's authority than Scripture. Groups that absolutize their spiritual experiences and make them normative for their Christianity invariably drift away from biblical doctrine and practice. This is especially the case when prophetic utterances rising out of our experiences are viewed as a source of new revelation. One particular group believing that their prophecies were living words for today, more relevant even than the Bible, began to print up, circulate, and read their prophecies in the place of Scripture. They have long since succumbed to rank heresy. The objective divine authority resonant in the Bible offers us the only sure safeguard against our being overtaken by the human heart's insidious bent towards idolatry and self-deception. Let me say this, there is no such thing as new revelation. The Word of God is perfect already. We don't need to add to it, we just need to understand it and apply it. There may be fresh insight into what's already been written, what's already true, but there is no such thing as new revelation. Jude 1.3 speaks of the faith once for all delivered to the saints. As we noted a few weeks back, Psalm 19 tells us that the Word of God is perfect. It's all we need. Let me read again a quote that I read then, because my guess is you don't remember it. Believers should find freedom and encouragement in the knowledge that God has provided all of the absolutely authoritative instruction that they need in order to know Him and live as He intends. God's people should never fear that he has withheld something they might need him to say in order for them to know how to please him, or that he will have to somehow supplement his word with new instructions for some new situation that arises in the modern age. The New Testament allows for the activity of the Holy Spirit in leading and guiding individuals, as in these passages of Scripture referenced here. But this guidance is always in line with Scripture, never in opposition to scriptural commands. Therefore, believers should be satisfied with what Scripture says, teaches, and what it leaves unsaid. The secret things belong 
to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. This is one reason I felt compelled to bring this morning's message to you, despite the potential it be viewed as negative. If this message is negative, then I have to ask this question. What do we do with the huge number of warnings that we see in Scripture? Here's just a sampling of the verses of Scripture that warn us. Romans 16, 17, and 18, I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Colossians 2, verses, verses 4 and 8, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. Verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge. Ephesians 5, 6, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, don't let anyone deceive you in any way. 1 Timothy 4.1, the Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13, while evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. James 1.16, don't be deceived, my dear brothers. 1 John 2.26, these things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. 2 Corinthians 2.17, unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity like men sent from God. In Luke 2.21, verse 8, Jesus said, watch out that you are not deceived for many will come in my name, claiming I am he and the time is near do not follow them. What an important word that is for us. Many deceivers, Jesus said, many deceivers will come in my name. Do not follow them. So who are we to follow? Well, the obvious answer is Jesus, right? The obvious conclusion is that we need to always have the word of God as our standard to distinguish truth from deception. But there's a problem there, isn't it? Can't we at least be honest with each other? Can we admit that it's not always as easy as that obvious answer sounds? Because those answers that I just gave you, they're true. But it's not always that easy. Because what we see is that deceivers themselves use God's words to deceive. I think that's one reason, looking back at our passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, that Paul uses the word cunning. It means trickery. And he reminds us that the first deception we see in Scripture is Satan tempting Eve. And what did Satan do? He used, he twisted, and questioned God's words to tempt Eve. He appealed to her intellect. He appealed to her innate human desire to be in control, to be like God. None of us deals with that, right? None of us cares about being in control of anything, right? 
But what he didn't say to Eve, he didn't say to Eve, hey, Eve, why don't you just rebel against God? That would have been too simple. It would have been too easy to recognize, wouldn't it? He said, did God really say? It's important to recognize a couple key points here about the comparison Paul made for us in 2 Corinthians 11. He says he feared that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, the Corinthian believers would be deceived. Just as. One commentary notes that Eve either did not know God's command very well or did not want to remember it. By contrast, Christ gained victory over Satan by his precise knowledge of God's word. Eve disparaged the privileges, added to the prohibition, and weakened the penalty, all seen if you contrast her words in Genesis 3.3 with God's original command in Genesis chapter 2. After Satan heard this, he blatantly negated the penalty of death that God had given. Satan is a liar from the beginning, and this is his lie. One can sin and get away with it. But death is the penalty for sin. So what the story of Adam and Eve tells me, and this is clearly reinforced by what Paul says here to the Corinthians, is that we have been gullible and self-serving since the beginning of time. Because we're gullible and because we're sinful, we need these warnings. We need them. Because we're gullible, we need to be on guard. We see in Jeremiah chapter 5, verses 30 and 31, an amazing couple verses of Scripture. This is God speaking through the prophet Jeremiah, and he says, An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule on their own authority, and my people love it so. But what will you do at the end of it? That's a sobering passage of Scripture to me. I think we could say the same about our Christian culture today. We have false prophets out there. We have self-appointed apostles and prophets ruling on their own authority. We have men who say they honor the Word of God as their standard, and then they ignore sound interpretation of Scripture and say whatever they want to say. Some have a hunger for signs and miracles that can border on the unhealthy. Lest you dismiss that statement from me, let me do a little of Paul's type of boasting here. Allow me to give my own Holy Spirit credentials. I'm not at all discounting the miraculous moving of the Holy Spirit. None of TCF's leadership could be classified as cessationists. Now, that's a big word, but all it means is that none of us believe that the gifts of the Holy Spirit ended with the original apostles. I can recount to you many personal experiences from speaking in tongues to prophecy to healing that I could classify in no other way in my own life as the Holy Spirit moving supernaturally. Long before I was an elder, I had it prophesied over me 30 years ago by Chuck Farah that I'd be used in the body to see that things are done decently and in order. Anybody here see that at work today? So you can't say to me, Bill, gee, you just don't understand. You're just not open to the Holy Spirit. But when those kinds of things become our desire, they become our goal, rather than what Paul called the simplicity and purity 
of devotion to Christ, that's when we can open ourselves up to spiritual deception. We looked at this idea several weeks ago. The Word of God must be our standard. It must be our guide. It must be our source of direction and inspiration. When we look to other things, other people, for these kinds of things, we can be, in Paul's words, led astray. And the word translated led astray here literally means corrupted. I think the word shows us that we can be deceived by other people. We can be deceived by the enemy of our souls, Satan. And we can deceive ourselves. Some of the sampling of verses we read just a moment ago show us to watch out for others who would deceive us. So when we read books or we read emails or magazines or web pages, when we converse with people, when we consume pretty much any kind of information, we have to remember we're susceptible to deception. And I'm not saying never to do these things. I do. But be careful. As Jesus said, watch out. Now, some people deceive perversely and knowingly, but I would say that most people who deceive are probably just deceived themselves and they don't realize it. But once that deception captures them, it can capture us too. You can certainly make a case that the enemy, Satan, is behind all deception. While Paul, in our key verses in 2 Corinthians 11 this morning, recognized that people do pay a, play a role in this deception, specifically these false apostles. He also pointed out that this is Satan's style. This is the way he does it. He's a deceiver. He's a liar. It's in his nature. In uh, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 13 through 15, which we didn't read earlier, I'll read now, such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It's not surprising, then, if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. In John 8:44, Jesus is speaking of the devil and he says he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language for he is a liar and the father of lies. So the enemy speaks from his own nature, his own na native language is lying. A strong case can be made here that whether deception seems to come from other people or from ourselves, it all comes from the enemy, who after all is also described in 1 Peter as a roaring lion. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. How does he devour us? One of the ways he devours us is with this deception, doesn't he? Let's also recognize that we can often deceive ourselves. Sometimes we can do that without help from anybody else. James chapter 1, verse 26, if anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself, and his religion is worthless. And Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure, who can understand it? Maybe one of the most dangerous phrases that circulates in our culture these days is this, listen to your heart. How many of you have heard that somewhere? You've heard it spoken in those words or you've seen it presented in some way. It's a message we see in movies, TV, popular music. We hear it spoken as if it's absolutely just taken for granted as true. And we see it depicted as true in stories. 
But Scripture tells us that our very own hearts can deceive us. To listen to our hearts or to listen to our hearts alone can be a dangerous thing because our very own hearts can deceive us. We are more than capable of deceiving ourselves when it comes to right and wrong, good and bad, sin and righteousness, and good versus bad doctrine. Let's look at some ideas about how we can guard against deception. This is not an exhaustive list, but this will get us started. First of all, know God's Word and know it well. Memorize it. Study it. Meditate on it. The better you know God's Word, the more protected you are from deception. So that's where we must start. That's our standard. That's our foundation on which everything else is built. Yet, as we recognized a moment ago, that's not enough all by itself because inevitably we have to choose between different interpretations of Scripture. You know what? There is, in fact, a right way and a wrong way to interpret Scripture. Scripture is not about what I think it means. Scripture is about what it means. It has a meaning. Let's learn the right way to interpret the Word of God. Now, this morning, we're not, we can't go into that. This is not the forum for the right way. But there are many good resources to help you learn the right way to interpret the Word of God. So if you need some help, ask us. Number two is related to the first idea. It's be a Berean. Now, if you don't know who the Bereans are, let's read what it says about them in Acts chapter 17, verse 11. The Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Now, think about that. They weren't just skeptics. They weren't just doubters. It says they received the message with great eagerness, but it also says that they examined the scriptures daily to see if what Paul said was true. The word for examined here means they scrutinized it. They didn't just take for granted what Paul told them. They looked at it carefully in Scripture. We all need to be Bereans. You need to be a Berean with every message you hear preached, including what you hear from this pulpit. You need to be a Berean. If it was good enough for Paul, it's good enough for me. I won't be offended if you search the Scriptures to see if what Bill said was true. If they did it with Paul... You can do it with Bill or Jim or Jim or Bruce or Gordon or Dave or Joel or anybody else in the pulpit. You need to be a Berean with every book you read, everything you consume that claims to be God's word for you. Number three, know those who labor among you. I think this is a very important protection against deception. As we noted, in, invariably, there arises a question about whose interpretation you're going to trust. Now, this doesn't excuse us from learning how to interpret Scripture for ourselves, but you have to realize that it's a relatively new phenomenon in the church that we have all these private interpretations of Scripture. When a congregation had only one Bible, which was usually true until after the invention of the printing press, interpretation was a corporate exercise. It was based on sound interpretive principles, and it was guided by godly leadership. It was never just me and Jesus. Let's figure this stuff out together. Me and Jesus. The question was never, what does this mean to me? The question was, what does this mean 
How do we discover its true meaning? That there is, in fact, one true meaning to be learned. When there's a question about which interpretation of Scripture to trust, who are you going to trust? Are you going to trust some radio or TV preacher? Some guy on the internet? Some author with a best-selling book? Now, you know what? Any or all of those may be absolutely trustworthy. There are certain authors I really trust. They have a track record with me. But what about those leaders whose lives you've watched, whose sermons you've listened to, whose character you've witnessed up close and personally through the thick and thin of life? Here I go again, credentialing myself and the leaders of this church, being a fool like Paul. So bear with me, as Paul asked. I would submit that those are at least in part credentials you can rely on. That's why Paul was boasting in 2 Corinthians 11, so let me do this foolish boasting. If I have a question about one interpretation of Scripture versus another, what am I going to do? I'm going to trust one or more of my fellow elders. I've seen their lives. I trust their character. I know them. I respect them. I don't think they know everything. We might actually disagree on some smaller, minor peripheral issues. What's more, I know that when they don't know something, they're going to tell me so. But when it comes to Christian doctrine, I'm going to start with the Word of God. That's my standard. I'm going to search the Scriptures daily as my ultimate standard, like the Bereans did. And then if there is a question still on how do I interpret something, I'm going to go with who I know. I'm going to go with who I know. This relates to the opening verses of Scripture in 2 Corinthians 11 that we read at the outset where Paul felt the need to boast. You know what Paul was saying there? Paul was saying to the Corinthians, why would you listen to these guys, these so-called super apostles? Why would you listen to them? Why don't you listen to me? Haven't I invested in your life? Haven't I earned that much? Don't you know me well enough to give me the benefit of the doubt? as opposed to these super apostles. In verse 4, he mentions the welcome they gave visitors who came proclaiming a message other than the gospel that they had embraced, the gospel that brought them salvation. It was as if Paul was saying, surely you should show your father in the faith at least the same degree of respect that you would show a newcomer, someone you don't know like you do know me. This is another way of saying, know your source. Know your source. And that doesn't mean just know what the source is. Know who this person is. Know them. Now, the leaders of this church aren't perfect, and we're not beyond deception ourselves. It's like none of you are beyond deception. So don't go out of here this morning saying, Bill said, only pay attention to what the elders say about any kind of doctrine. Because that's not what I'm saying. But combined with these other protections against deception, we're a whole lot less vulnerable to deception than if we just go it alone or we listen to these super apostles. The last protection against deception, consult, consider church history. This is an overlooked protection. Now, I want to be clear at the outset that our forefathers in the faith didn't always get it right either. But think about this. If the church of Jesus Christ has believed something for 2,000 years, if they've had councils, if they've had reams of documents written, they've had endless prayer and discussion and debate and study, and for two millennia they keep coming to the same conclusion 
about the most significant basic doctrines of the faith, I have to tell you, I have to at least give that some weight when I'm considering what's true and what's not, when I'm making those decisions between true and false doctrine. So this morning, as an elder of TCF, I can say with Paul, as he wrote in verse 2 of our text, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I can say that I share Paul's concern for your spiritual well-being. I can say that I hope you will be on guard against deception, realizing that we all battle a cunning foe. And I can also say that I pray your minds will never be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Amen? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we have such a firm foundation on which we can stand. But Father, we recognize that we always have to choose how to interpret Scripture. We always have to choose who we're going to listen to. Father, we want to hear from you. And we want to hear from you through your word. And we want to watch out, Father. And we want to be on guard. Father, we pray, even as Paul prayed for his Corinthian brothers and sisters in Christ, we want to pray that we will never be led astray from a simple and pure devotion to Christ. That's our heart's desire, Father, is that our doctrine would be pure, our devotion would be pure, our relationship with you would be simple and pure, and that we would know you wholeheartedly, Father God, and we would follow you and serve you. We thank you, Father, that you've given us a means that is perfect, that your word is perfect, and it's all we need for faith and practice, Father God. And Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would indeed illuminate your word to our hearts and our minds so that we can know you better and be protected against false doctrine. We thank you, Father, for these truths. We commit them to you and ask you to instill these things in us in these coming days. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Bill, thank you for that word, a sobering word that we all need to be reminded of, of having a pure devotion to our Lord. As we come to the closing, I'll we'll remind you at the end of the service, the basket is up here for our benevolence. But I also had uh, Darlene Green come by and ask, uh, we pray for Bud Green. He's, he's really struggling with some health issues, and so let's pray for our brother, Bud Green. Father, I thank you for this man. Lord, you led him and Darlene here at TCF. And we pray, Lord, that you administer your healing touch to our brother, Bud. We thank you, Father, for the many answered prayers for many in this congregation. We pray today, Lord, that as well for our brother. Lord, we ask that you give him wisdom and strength, but most of all today, Lord, a touch from you. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are dismissed.